Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight in the satsang I will continue with the presentation of some of the most inspiring of the so-called Yoga Upanishads from the more than 200 Upanishadic texts which exist in India. There are 20 of them which are called Upanishads of Yoga. Those are Upanishadic texts in which direct yoga technology, direct yoga practices are being described. These Upanishads, some of them belong to the Shaiva tradition, some of them belong to the Vedantic tradition. And um, <clears throat> last uh, week, I already started with the first of these texts, a short Upanishad called the Mahavakya Upanishad, the great word, the great logos. Today, I'm continuing with an Upanishad which is slightly longer in text. Let's see if I will have the time to finalize it in one go. It's still relatively short, like there are Upanishads which are two times, three times longer than this in text. This Upanishad all in all counts 21 strophes. It's true that these trophies are not in entirely shlokas in the Sanskrit typical scholarship because they are unequal in length. Some of them are longer, some of them are shorter. So the style of this Upanishad is a little bit more free, grammatically speaking, than the usual style of uh, most of these Sanskrit texts, which are either shlokas or sutras. Today's Upanishad is called Hamsa Upanishad, and that's uh, one of the beautiful double entendre. Actually, in the last Upanishad, those of you who remember, who are here and remember some of the contents of it, the very mantra Hamsa and this concept that the human breath comes in with hum and goes up with sa, and this creates a mantra which is hum, sa, hum, sa, hum, sa. Or if you take it the other way around, then it is sa, hum, sa, hum, sa, hum. This mantra um, is very much mentioned in the Upanishads. It is used in many, many yoga texts. It is used in the Kriya Yoga tradition of Yogananda Paramahamsa and others. And uh, here you all, we already go in the second Upanishadic text and again we encounter references to the mantra Hamsa. So Hamsa is a very special word because on one hand it represents the sound of a mantra and in the sounds of the mantra we don't try to find any meaning because the sounds of the mantras are, as some of you know already, onomatopoeic. They are imitations of the sounds of nature. They are subtle sounds produced by different energies as perceived by the human being. But at the same time, and we don't know how this came to be, if it was done on purpose or if it is one of the vocal one of the phonemic synchronicities, one of the phonemic resonances of Sanskrit. The word hamsa, simplified, not made exactly of the same letter, like hamsa, but it doesn't need to have the H in the end. The word hamsa, made of like five letters, five phonemes, means also a swan, the bird called the swan. And because of this and because the mantra Hamsa relates with the liveliness, with the life, with the breath, with the life of the human being, 
with consciousness. And therefore, if you push a little bit, if you stretch the meanings, it can be related with the soul or with the spirit of the human being. Then, the spirit of the human being, which is in the general Vedantic tradition, is called Atma or Atman. It can be called Hamsa, like your soul is a swan. Often we see in movies that some symbolic authors show the soul of a human being when the human being dies, like a bird which comes out of the body and flies. So even in art, the soul is represented like a bird sometimes. And therefore, the swan, the word hamsa being a swan and the swan being a bird, it is related, being related with life at one end in yoga, at the other level, at the other end, at the symbolic level, it is connected with the soul, with the spirit. And thus, here there are lots of speculations. You are going to see a few of them coming up, not being explained, but just coming up, popping up in the text of this Upanishad. Like, for example, swans are migratory birds. They move from one place to another. And this being a migratory bird, then it gives the opportunity to say that your soul, which is now in your body, is a migratory bird, which means it has migrated in your body from another body, and from your body it will migrate in another body, this being the common uh, denomination, the common description of the phenomenon of transmigration of the soul, called in more uh, down-to-earth environments, instead of metempsychosis or transmigration, being simply called reincarnation. So there are lots of metaphors associated with this swan thing, with this bird thing. And that's why Hamsa Upanishad is the Upanishad of the spirit, is the Upanishad of Atman, is the Upanishad which talks about the immortal soul that can transmigrate from body to body. And it's also the Upanishad of the mantra Hamsa, which is related with the meditation, and which we teach even in the first level in the Prana Uchara, when with the mantra Hamsa, the breath is moving up and down. That's why this name is very full of meanings. It's a double entendre, triple entendre type of name, which covers a lot of meanings. Hamsa Upanishad says, come, starts by saying, describing in a very half sentence, the circumstances, and it says, the wise Gautama, approaching the Lord, asked. So it's the dialogue between a sage, between a wise human being, and God. How did a human being talk to God? That's not explained here. And that, of course, it shows that it's a mystical text. It can be that this very Gautama, he wrote it, and in his mind he thought he was talking to God and God was dictating, exactly as the prophet Muhammad said that the archangel Gabriel came and dictated to him the Quran, verset by verset. If you are an atheist who doesn't believe in this, you say nonsense. It was Muhammad who made it up out of his mind. It came out of his mind. So in this way, uh, all these mystical traditions, they can be, of course, uh, read in multiple ways. This Gautama, which is mentioned here, is, however, not Gautama the Buddha. The name Gautama exists in many places in the Indian tradition. Scholars tell us that in this case, this Gautama is called Uda Laka, is a yogi 
a master of yoga called Udalaka, and he was having the nickname Gautama. So this is another Gautama. And he asked, and his first, the first verse of this text simply says, O Lord Shiva, so he, for him the Lord, which was not mentioned, is Shiva, therefore this is a typical yogic dialogue. And he says, O Lord Shiva, you who know all the laws of the universe, the laws of the universe are a very important issue because if we live at odds with the laws of the universe, sooner or later we get in trouble. The laws of the universe, which the Jewish prophets call righteousness, like you have to live in all righteousness, if you don't fulfill the righteousness, you go against the will of God. This will of God in the Indian and Tibetan environment gets a more impersonal name. They are the laws of the universe, and it's called dharma. Even a great spiritualist like George Oshava, the founder of macrobiotics, calls it the order of the universe. In your first level papers, handouts, this is mentioned somewhere as the seven laws of the order of the universe. Like these are seven laws, including in one particular law concerning polarity. There is a major law which says that everything is either yin or yang in this universe. And there are laws, seven laws of yin and yang as they dance with each other, as they interact with each other. And this order of the universe is like the way things are meant to be. The way things are. The way things are supposed to be. This order of the universe, both in Hinduism and in Buddhism, is called Dharma. Dharma means what is right. And in a Christian understanding, again, it will be like the will of God. It's the way God wants things to be. That's why Udalaka praises Shiva by saying, You who know all the laws of the universe. It's more than that, of course, because Shiva has created all the laws of the universe. So he definitely knows them organically. You who know all the sciences, this means the authorship of all the knowledge. It refers in general to yoga, but you can say that then it refers to any form of knowledge. Tell me, so since you, Shiva, are so knowledgeable, tell me how to awaken the spirit to the knowledge of Brahman. The spirit is Atman, and he says how to awaken the spirit the Atman, the soul, if you prefer. In India, the terminology soul, spirit, God is not very clearly defined. Like the human being is made of body, soul, spirit, says Paul, the Apostle of Christ. So what is the soul and what is the spirit? Because sometimes people usually like, my soul went from body to body for 5,000 lifetimes. No, it's your spirit who went from life. Your soul, is, what's the difference? What's the soul and what's the spirit? We are not going to do now um, uh, some philosophical lesson about these. They can be answered in questions and answer sessions. The point is that in many translations, the words are used loosely. Here I prefer to use the word spirit because in Sanskrit the division is very clear. The word which designates this is called Atma or Atman. And Atman is the spirit it is the immortal part. The only limitation of Atman is that it is my Atman. Atman is an individual thing. 
And then there exists a Paramatman, a universal Atman, a cosmic Atman, and that would be the equivalent of the concept of God. It's the spirit of the universe. Atman is the spirit of the microcosm, and Brahman, or God, is the spirit of the universe, of the macrocosm. So, Udalaka asks simply, Shiva, tell me how to awaken the spirit to the knowledge of Brahman, which is the purpose of all the yoga. The real, ultimate yoga, the spiritual yoga, that's its purpose. Its purpose is that your spirit should be open towards the universal consciousness. To which Shiva answered. So that's a simple sentence there. And it starts with the strophe number two. And it goes, the answer to Shiva goes till the end of the text. Shiva speaks for 20 strophes, for 20 Versets or paragraphs. And he says in verse number two first, so you want to awaken your spirit to the reality of Brahman. First, learn the laws of Dharma. It's very important. The laws of Dharma, the equivalent of it in yoga would be to say Yama and Niyama. Those are the laws of Dharma as understood by the yogis. If you live by yama and niyama, then you live according to the laws of dharma. Those are the laws of dharma applied in daily life. So Shiva says, first, before you ask me how to awaken your spirit, first learn the laws of dharma, which means live in harmony. Live according to yama and niyama. Assimilate profoundly the teachings of the Lord of the Trident, which is Shiva himself. Shiva is the Lord of the Trident. And he doesn't speak, assimilate profoundly my laws. He says, assimilate profoundly the teachings of the Lord of the Trident, Shiva. And what is this? Well, Shiva is the author of yoga by tradition. So Shiva says, do yama and yama, live according to dharma, and assimilate the teachings of yoga, all the teachings of Shiva which exist in the Indian tradition. So as you can see, he puts some conditions. He says, learn the laws of Dharma, and of course he means uh, apply them, assimilate profoundly the teachings of yoga, the spirit of yoga, and only afterwards, O Gautama, will I tell you the truth as it was revealed to me by Parvati. So first of all, he puts conditions, and he says, first, live in dharma, live in yoga, and then I will teach you such. Like, this is not a question for people from the street. And the second interesting thing says that this truth has been revealed to me, Shiva, by Parvati. There exists a minor tradition in India by which, while usually... Shakti is asking Shiva, Oh Shiva, teach me this and that. And this tradition is called Agama. There is a tradition which goes the other way around, and which is called Nigama. And in the Nigama tradition, Shiva asks of Shakti. That's considered to be a sort of a Shakta tradition, where the image of God is rather feminine. It's Shakti, and Shiva pretends to be the disciple who learns from the Cosmic Mother. Therefore, in this Upanishad, some of the teaching seems to come from a Nigama Indian tradition, from a Shakta 
Indian tradition and it contains elements of Kundalini and so on because Shiva himself says I will teach you this precious tradition which has been revealed to me by Parvati. By this the author says it's coming from the cosmic mother. He says in the paragraph number three this truth is secret and one must not divulge it. These are Upanishads. Usually it is said that yogic texts, tantric texts are very secretive. But look, it's the second text. If you remember the Mahavakya Upanishad, it had one paragraph like this, exactly like this. It said this is a secret teaching and it should not be divulged to all and sundry. It's a very precious doctrine and ignorant people and so on, they must fulfill some conditions. Always in yoga, it's like you know, people sometimes say, Oh, can these yogis be more transparent? That's not a thing of yoga. The yogis in their tradition were generally very secretive. It's a psychological thing by which the yogis discovered that some things which are held in secret and practiced in secret produce more effects. And thus, for them, they always shroud themselves in secrecy. Like they are of the opinion that the teachings can be very abrupt, very powerful. Even today you are going to hear about some teachings which are part of Kundalini Yoga and definitely the beginners can't do them easily. And therefore they always say this should be done slowly, slowly. Don't be in a rush to just spill the beans because it's not just about being transparent. Transparency does not play a big role in the teaching of yoga. There will always be something which has to come after something else and therefore it has to be kept, it has to be withdrawn or held. So, he says, this truth is secret and one must not divulge it. I reserve it for the perfect adept out of whom yoga makes a vessel. Like yoga resides in you. You are yoga. This metaphor is used in Geranda Samhita. In Geranda Samhita it says your body and your nadis are like a clay pot. And this clay pot, to be able to hold God, has to be first burned. Because if you don't burn a clay pot and put water into it, the water will destroy it, will soften it immediately and run through it. So basically, Geranda Samhita says, a human being that has done not 2, 3, 5, 10, 20, 30 years of yoga is not fit to acquire God. God is too much. It will ruin you. Paul, the Apostle of Christ, says, after he had his ups and downs, his tribulations, he says, for henceforth, it is not I by Christ, but Christ Jesus that lives in me. Like he says, I went to Rome. I went to Rome because Jesus made me go to Rome. It's not me. Paul doesn't want to go to Rome. But Jesus wants Paul to go to Rome. And that's why Paul is in Rome. Jesus lives in me like a total surrender to the will of God. This is exactly what he says here in another way. I reserve this teaching, says Shiva, for the perfect adept out of whom yoga makes a vessel. Like Ramakrishna Paramahamsa was called by Romain Roland when he wrote his biography, the prince of the yogis. Ramakrishna is like a prince among the yogis. He is the prince of yoga. 
Yoga made a vessel out of Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna was a carrier of yoga. He was a manifestation of yoga. So did the guru of Yogananda when he called him Yogananda. Paramahamsa Yogananda. This is the one who transmits yoga. So it's like you have to become yoga. Your life has to become yoga. So Shiva says this is for great disciples like that. For out of whom yoga makes a vessel worthy of the most beautiful gems. Gems in the same meaning in which Jesus says don't throw pearls, don't cast pearls to the swine. <coughs> like precious spiritual teachings and truths are compared by Jesus with pearls. And he says if you give pearls to the swine, the swine won't be able to appreciate pearls because they don't understand how valuable and how beautiful pearls can be. And then the pigs will trample over those pearls and go against you. So, exactly as this, here the text compares the spiritual teachings with gems, with jewels. He says, the adept who is, who is made a vessel by yoga and worthy of the most beautiful gems. It, this truth, which about which you speak, it is the true knowledge of the swan, or hamsa, and by it one obtains to be liberated forever. This is the true knowledge of the swan. And it's double entendre again, because it means the true knowledge of the spirit, which resides in now in this body, and that's of course the knowledge of Atman, know thyself, and at the same time is the knowledge of hamsa, as of the mantra hamsa, and what it represents, so it's double entendre, and it says simply, by this teaching, one obtains to be liberated forever. Again, this is not a, teacher which heal, a teaching which heals liver diseases. This is not a teaching which makes you happy in your sexual life. This is not a teaching which makes you walk on water. This is a teaching by which one obtains to be liberated forever. If you are seeking for liver healing, you don't need Hamsa Upanishad. Hamsa Upanishad doesn't go there. It's not, not about that. It's not for that. It's a teaching which gets one to be liberated, to reach the pure spirit. Four. I will tell you, therefore, what this teaching is, after he warned him that, be careful, this is a big teaching. Nevertheless, he says, you should learn the laws of Shiva, the laws of Dharma, check. You should have absorbed profoundly the science of yoga, check. You should be made a vessel of yoga, check. You are worthy of gems. Like he knows his disciple. And therefore he simply says the conditions nevertheless. And then he says you qualify. I will tell you therefore what this teaching is. And what is the supreme swan. The supreme swan is a very beautiful twist of words. Because the words used are Paramahamsa. And Paramahamsa is even a title. Ramakrishna was called Paramahamsa Ramakrishna. And Yogananda was called Paramahamsa Yogananda. And nowadays it is given in India. Theoretically, the Indians are not sticking to the regulations very Germanic-like. But theoretically, the title Paramahamsa is given to somebody who took the Swami vows. And at the same time, it's a person who never had sex with anybody in their life. 
like to a man or a woman who is a virgin and was reached yoga being a virgin and stayed a virgin till the death. Such a person is supposed to be called Paramahamsa. In the case of yoga, in the case of Ramakrishna, it was applied later when some of his disciples tried to deny that he did any tantric practice, while the history of Ramakrishna told by his own mouth said that sometimes there was a period of his time where he was instructed even in sexual tantra. But like that doesn't matter. If it's sexual tantra, you are still a Paramahamsa, because in a certain way you are like a virgin, because you don't ejaculate, you don't do uh, these things, you know, and so on. So it, it doesn't matter. So, again, that's a word which is stretched, but Paramahamsa also has a beautiful meaning, because if your soul, Atman, if your spirit is Hamsa, then Paramahamsa means Paramatman. It means the soul of the universe, the spirit of the universe, which is God. So, Paramahamsa, as well as Paramatman, these are two words which can be used to designate especially in the Vedantic tradition, to designate the spirit of the universe or God. So I will tell you, therefore, what this teaching is and what is the Supreme Swan, the Paramahamsa. Because you are a disciple that is master of himself and devoted to the spiritual study. These are the excuses which the Guru brings here. He says, I'm giving this to you because you are a disciple that is master of himself Self-mastery is one of the big conditions. No? Like when you get pissed off, when you get, when it's full moon outside, when something is happening, are you still master of yourself? Do you master yourself in any condition? If not, one day you are going to learn the death mantra and when you'll be out of your mind with insanity, you're going to kill somebody. And then you're going to say, sorry. Then your guru shouldn't have given you the death mantra because you are not master over yourself. Many things in yoga are conditioned by this. Are you master of yourself in all respects which are visible for the human being? And he says, also, because you are devoted to the spiritual study. Like, you want to reach Brahman, you want to reach Nirvana. This is your life. So because of this, he says, I, will, I am okay to give you this teaching. The teaching, and he starts with a blurb, with a resume, the teaching is to meditate again and again upon the swan, which means on the mantra Hamsa, and on your Atman, to meditate on your spiritual nature, ceaselessly repeating Hamsa, Hamsa. So, double entendre everywhere. Meditate on the spirit, and at the same time, use this famous mantra, which as you have learned in the Prana Uchara, and as you have learned last week, when it's mentioned also by the Mahavakya Upanishad, it means the essence of the Anapana, practices from Buddhism, which means awareness of the breath. Only that in India, the awareness of the breath is not just related to nothing, to pure awareness. It is substantiated, it is backed, it is endorsed, it is helped by 
a mantra, which is very specifically tantric and very specifically Indian. The Indians would often use mantras to sustain an idea. So he simply says, to conclude paragraph number four, the teaching, roughly speaking, in general, as a blurb, as a resume, is to meditate again and again upon the swan, understand, read, Atman, the Supreme Self, ceaselessly repeating Hamsa, Hamsa. So also by using the mantra Hamsa, obviously associated to the breath, because that's where it's coming from. Five. This migratory swan, so so much of a double entendre, it's a swan which migrates, which means it's your soul, your spirit, which goes in your body and out of your body when you finish this life in this body. So this spirit which moves from a body to another, but which at the same time means Atman, it means if it's spirit, then it means the pure consciousness, it means the I am, Hamsa. As I told you already, it's read by some people, aham, sa. Aham means I in Sanskrit and sa, that. So, aham, sa, I am that. No, I am that, which is a meditation on Atman, and Atman is God, and all that. So, this migratory swan enters in all the beings, enters in all the beings. It's like beings are nothing. If there is a being without the Hamsa, that being is a zombie. It's an empty vessel. It's just biologically a body, but it has no spirit. And the spirit is everywhere. So it enters in all the beings and is present in them. And now he wants to say it's not visible. You don't, it's there, but you don't really see it. And he uses two typical Indian metaphors of something which is present and yet not clearly seen in a subtle way. It is present in them, one, as the fire is in the friction sticks. There are two sticks that you rub for making fire. And in the old days, the Vedic fire was lit by two sticks to be a pure fire. So it is present as the fire in the friction sticks. Like when you have two friction sticks, there is fire. But it is potential, it's hidden, you don't see it. Only when you rub the sticks, the fire comes up and then you see it. So it's present as the fire in the friction sticks and as the oil is in the sesame seeds. There is sesame oil and when you look at the seeds, you don't see it. It's in the seeds and yet you, don't, you know it's in the seeds, but you don't see it. In the same way, he says, exactly as you don't see the fire in the sticks, but it's there, potentially, given the right conditions. And exactly as the oil is in the sesame seeds, and you don't see it, but you know it, you can extract it in special conditions. Exactly in the same way, the spirit exists, potentially, latent as a background in every human being. So, he says, this migratory swan, this hamsa, this spirit enters in all the beings and is present in them as the fire is in the friction sticks and as the oil is in the sesame seeds. To know that is to defeat death. That's the definition of immortality. Many people, because of materialism, they tend to understand that maybe human beings can become immortal physically. There exist urban legends in yoga, according to which this guru 
lived 250 years, I met one of these gurus who suggested me to give the name Agama to this school, who was reputed in that area to actually be 250 years old. The man who introduced, and this man practically had no disciples. He was just a very old man living alone, doing some rituals on the side of the Ganges. And the man who introduced him to me, he told me, I met this guy in the 1970s. He was Indian, this man. He said, I was a Maoist guard. I believed in communism and I wanted to make India Marxistic and communistic. I was wearing a gun on me all the time, like I was a violent person. And one day he got to meet this guru. And as soon as he started talking to this guru, he broke completely. He started crying like a baby because this guru was looking at him like he was looking through glass. Could see through him so easily you know, and talk to him. And then he said, I asked this guru how old he was. And he told me he was 240 or something at that time. And he said, I am a Marxist. I, am a mater- I, was, I was a Marxist. I was a skeptical, materialistic person. And I was a journalist. I worked in a newspaper. So I can't admit that somebody tells me I'm 240 years old. The first thing which I hear is lie, hoax. And he said, I asked him a few things of the history. And then he said, I went and verified in the archives. And the man was there. The man knew exactly what had happened, things which were not known to the public. He knew things which had happened 200 years ago. The same thing happened with the guru of one of my great teachers, Dhirendra Brahmachari. The guru of Dhirendra Brahmachari apparently did a lot of Paschimottanasana and others, and he apparently lived 300 years. And Dhirendra Brahmachari told to me that they had journalists and researchers look at the archives, and they found his name in the archives. Like it was written 150 years ago that this yogi participated at the ceremony given by the king. If it was another yogi who had exactly the same name, but the name continued like this in history. So, again, there are urban legends. We can't demonstrate them. And, of course, we read about Yogananda, who says that the guru of the guru of his guru, Babaji, is a legendary yogi who lived 2,000 years. And Baird Spalding in the Masters of the East, the lives of the Masters of the East, he wrote about others whom he allegedly he refused to name them by the name. It's not verified. If there are yogis who live, who create physical immortality, I'm not saying it's impossible, but they make it in such a way that you don't see it. Like Milarepa has died, Ramakrishna has died, Mahananda Mai has died, Mirabai and Apinavagupta have died. Apinavagupta at least has disappeared. We don't know if he has died. No. And the list could continue like this. And therefore, um, this is always when they talk in the yoga texts about immortality, they would say, although Jesus died, and all those Rumi died, and all those Ramakrishna died, they have reached immortality. What is immortality? Immortality is a condition where you can have complete continuity of spirit. That simply says you, theoretically, are immortal. Or let's rephrase it. Inside you, there is an immortal spirit called Atman or Hamsa. 
but you are still afraid of death. Most people are, as much as they may brag that they are not. And not only that, but you don't remember the continuity of your spirit. Where were you a hundred years ago? Precisely. Nobody remembers. If you remember, then you have continuity of the spirit. That simply says, all of us, when we fall asleep, or when we die, our consciousness cuts. And then we may go in a new body, then that's a new consciousness. It's like you get a blank hard drive, and you start writing on it. But the memories from before, they are sealed. They are locked. That's why immortality in spirit, spiritual immortality, means when there is no more deleting. When you can continue. When you have full continuity. This full continuity is called enlightenment. It's called spiritual liberation. And it is therefore referred to here. And that's why he says to know that is to defeat death. Death can stop your body from existing. But is not stopping you from experiencing continuously People are always trying to think, and especially those of you who have lived for a number of years in this body in which you are now, how much experience you have now compared to when you were 15 or 20 years old. And you often think, if when I was 15 or 20 years old I had this knowledge, oh my God, what would I have done with this knowledge? So of course, living long and keeping continuity will empower you to do amazing things. But every 80 years or so, your consciousness, your continuity is cut. And then if you go into a new body, it may be the same immortal spirit, which is sleeping. But your experience starts from zero, again. You don't have the experience from before, except in a very, very veiled subconscious way, like some glimpses and glimpses and pieces of intuition, but nothing very clear. And nothing very... Even people who can remember actual things from the previous lives, those things are bits and pieces. They are not a constant, continuous experience. Like now, when you look at your life and you say, My God, I have learned so many things. I could do a lot of things if I had more time. And thus, he says it here metaphorically, to know that is to defeat death. That is spiritual immortality, basically. I'm, again, I'm not saying that there are no stories about physical immortality, but those belong to a totally different order, and they are not mentioned in this text. It's not about that. And now he gives a method, which I'm not teaching to you. You will be having difficulties in applying it, unless you've done plenty of yoga, this is a method for those of you who did or who do the Kundalini Yoga practices in Agama. You are going to discover here elements from the Shakti Chalana Mudra, from the Yoni Mudra, from all the techniques of rising of Kundalini, associating it with Pranayama techniques and the such. So this is how he describes it. Paragraph number six, which is one of those which is longer, considerably longer than the others. First of all, the adept assumes the pose of the lotus, the so-called Padmasana, the posture of the lotus, and holds the inhaled breath. So it's all done during full retention, as we call it here in Agama, holding the breath in. 
inhale and holding it for a long time. Then he presses his anus with his left heel. It's one of these positions where you stick the feet in the perineum and makes his subtle breath rise from Muladhara Chakra till the Manipura Chakra. So he mentions the chakras directly. Actually, Manipura is not called Manipura. It's called something else with money. It's the gate of the jewels. Manipura means the city of the jewels, while the gate of the jewels is slightly different. So even the names of the chakras in these texts are like when you say, rise your energy from Muladhara to the gate of the jewels. Everybody knows that if you talk about jewels, you talk about Manipura, especially because further down the text it mentions Anahata, Vishuddha, and so on. So it's like, it's logical. But if you have not been in yoga and you read this, you start getting lost. Like, uh, what? What's he talking? What's the gate of the jewels? So it's all these yoga texts are written on purpose in a funny way, in a slightly convoluted, in a intended, complicated way, so that if you are an outsider, you already start having doubts and saying, we don't know. So, presses the anus that this is a mudra from yoga, this is part of this sitting asanas from yoga, like siddhasana and others, but again, this is not the posture of the lotus. In the posture of the lotus, you cannot at the same time sit in the lotus and press your anus with a heel. Pressing your anus with a heel is possible in Siddhasana. So obviously, he either calls Siddhasana Padmasana, which is, would be frequent in India, that he mixes up the name of some cross-legged asanas, or he mixes it up on purpose to create further confusion. The people who do these mudras in yoga, they know how you do it, and they don't need to bother too much about uh, such details. And he makes his subtle breath, actually in the text, the word subtle is added by me, because in the text he says he makes his breath, in, in Sanskrit that's prana, he makes his prana rise from Muladhara Chakra to Manipura, and so on, but prana means breath, but breath Usually it's air, like I drew air. Actually, I drew air and prana. And the people who don't know pranayama, who haven't learned the secrets of pranayama, are again at a loss because they say, why do these people say, you breathe in and you take the breath down in your root chakra? But the breath can never go in the root chakra because the oxygen, the air, cannot go lower than the diaphragm muscle. It stays in the lungs. What are you talking about? It's not logical, it's like it's mystical, it's convoluted, it's not. It refers to the energy, but the yogis mix the air and the energy constantly. Now they speak about the air, now they speak about the prana, and if you don't know which is which, then you get again confused. So he says, and makes his subtle breath rise from Muladhara Chakra till the Manipura Chakra. Well, some of you today manage to do that, and it's a victory for you by doing, let's say, 25 Udhyana Bandhas. And until you learn 25 Udhyana Bandhas, you had panic attacks, you are stuck in Muladhara Chakra, you are unable to sublime the energy, and just Udhyana Bandha is like, whoa, paradise, you know, it saves the day. Whenever I get stuck in my lower chakras, I just stand up and do a hundred Udhyana Bandhas, and then I'm straight as the rain. This He's, he mentions it here like it's peanuts. He says, oh yeah, and then you sit in this position, and then you rise your subtle breath, your prana, from Muladhara Chakra till the Manipura. 
90% of the beginners will say what? How? Because the beginners, their subtle breath doesn't listen to their will. Or maybe you should do with the Anabanda. But he doesn't say. In the beginning he said you do it as you hold your breath in. So it's something which, so here I hold the breath in. And now I rise my subtle breath from Muladhara to Manipura. Only people who did at least six months, one year of yoga can do that. Takes practice. So he is not talking to the beginner. Here he talks and he speaks about the rising of Kundalini. And then he makes it more funny, more convoluted to see what a twisted way of thinking he says. He says, makes the subtle breath rise from Muladhara to Manipura, but not without having it swirled around his Vadistana three times. Like, well, between Muladhara and Manipura you have Svadhisthana. You're not going to miss that. So it goes from Muladhara, it goes in Svadhisthana, and there he uses a hilarious metaphor which makes you laugh, that he swirls it around Svadhisthana three times, and then further up to Manipura. So obviously it swirls three times in Muladhara, and it swirls three times in Manipura. No? This is exactly the process which we teach here in Agama, at the practice of the Kundalini Yoga, the Yoni Mudra, where the Kundalini stops at every chakra for a second or two or three, and there it produces a specific effect. Here, this yogi who wrote this, Udalaka or whoever it was, calls this swirling it around the chakra, like rubbing it through it, churning it through it a little bit, so you don't just pass through it like a train goes through an empty railway station. The energy is not just going through Svadhisthana, it goes to Svadhisthana and says, hello Svadhisthana, and then it goes to Manipura, and then it says, hello Manipura, and it goes to Anahata, and it says, hi Anahata, and it goes, in every chakra it does something, it like produces an effect, it stops there. So, but not without having it swirled around his Svadhisthana three times. From there, Manipura, because that's where he had reached, Svadhisthana was in between. From there, the subtle breath rises until Anahata, as you can see, this text mentions also the chakras as in the classical yoga tradition. There are people who say, oh, the chakras are very weird. And No, there is a tradition. And even an Upanishad is kind of taking it for granted. It rises until Anahata and surpasses it, reaching Vishuddha, which is flanked by two balls of flesh resembling the testicles. He says, your Vishuddha chakra doesn't say it's in the throat, but it says it has something like two testicles around it. Either that means the thyroid and the parathyroid, which are back and forth, back and forth of the Vishuddha chakra, or he means the tonsils in the throat here. He alludes to something which recalls that we're talking about the area of the throat. The comparison is hilarious, rude, perhaps unnecessarily rude, because you rise to Anahata and then you rise to Vishuddha, which is flanked by two balls of flesh which resembles with the testicles. Like, okay, couldn't we have had a more refined comparison than this one? You know, it's like, did we need to recall the testicles? It's like, why not? You know, it's like, it's a human body. We are simple-minded yogis and we are just making lots of stories. You know, so it rises to Vishuddha. What do you remember about Vishuddha? That it's flanked about two balls of flesh. You know, it's like, okay, if you want to put it like this, sure. Holding still the breath, so it continues in the same breath, hold, 
the adept leads on the inspired air, the inspired air. He literally says the inspired air, but he doesn't lead the air. He leads the prana. So again, the text is always written in this dubious language. He leads the air until Ajna Chakra and the Brahmarandra. He doesn't call it Sahasrara because it's not a chakra. In the classical yoga, there are six chakras and then there is the domain of the crown. And from the domain of the crown, he simply says Brahmarandra. Brahmarandra is the place where Sahasrara physically touches the human body at the latest, at the highest point. Brahmarandra is the aperture of Brahma on the very top of the head. And basically he means Sahasrara, but he says Brahmarandra. So he, it's a retention where you go, Muladhara, Zvadistana, Manipura, Anahata, the two balls of Vishuddha, Ajna, Brahmarandra, Sahasrara. That's a Yoni Mudra, that's a Shakti Chalana done gradually, slowly. And he concludes this verse by saying, meditating thus, if he does, holds the breath and does one such rising, he finally realizes that he is the triadic spirit, Satchitananda, beyond any form. He is the triadic spirit. The triadic spirit is the nature of God, who is in India presented as three, Satchitananda, Sat, pure existence, Chit, pure consciousness, and Ananda, pure bliss, pure ecstasy. Satchitananda, existence, consciousness, and bliss, are the three names, the triadic name of God, as I showed in the Kashmiri Shaivism workshop and many others, this is a typical triadic structure in India. And he says, if you meditate like this, rising it to Sahasrara, the one who does this well realizes that he is the triadic spirit, Satchitananda, that he is God beyond any form. That's just one epithet. That spirit is beyond forms, which is, of course, obvious. This is the supreme swan. So he gave a lesson which is of Kundalini Yoga. But again, this technique, I did not teach it to you tonight. I just mentioned it. You are going to be taught in Agama uh, techniques which are corresponding to this, which come from the classical Kundalini Yoga. And there uh, you will see exactly the modalities of doing it. And he says in 7, this is the supreme swan. Satchitananda, this triadic nature that one realizes that one is, this is what is called the Supreme Swan, Paramahamsa, otherwise said Paramatman, or otherwise said God, the cosmic consciousness. This is the Supreme Swan, shining with the light of 10, millions sun, 10 million suns and pervading all things. A visual simile, the people who perceive God as light perceive God as an inextinguishable perfect light, which the Kashmirians have called Prakasha, which the Christians have called the light of God or the light of the, or the light of light, the light beyond light, the uncreated light, which is a light which is described in many yogic texts like the light of 10 million suns. Like dazzling, amazing, more shining than any shining that you can imagine, the shining of the shining. But again, it's not a light which manifests as heat, as manipura, as fire. It's a purely spiritual light. It's a light of the light, the light behind the light.
So it's a simile that universal spirit is like a shining 10 million suns pervading all things. And in the shloka number 8, he makes a very strange transition by which he alludes to the effect which comes after. Like first he described the rising from Muladhara to Sahasrara. And then he says a very beautiful thing in number 8. Residing henceforth in the lotus of the heart, but he doesn't call it Anahata. He calls it the lotus of the hrid, the heart, the hrid, Padma. So he means something slightly different as you will see. He finds there eight incitations corresponding to the eight petals. He speaks about a lotus with eight petals. But Anahata Chakra is a chakra that has 12 spokes or 12 petals. So we are not talking about Anahata Chakra. And those of you who studied the yoga asana practice in level 4, classically, sometimes taught in 3 or 5, depending on different systems of teaching that we have here, the yoga asana, there you have had a lecture, a quite solid lecture, about Jivatman, the individual self. And you have heard that the yogis speak about a chakra called Hrid Chakra as separate from Anahata. Like it is a sort of a secondary chakra of Anahata Chakra, which is placed slightly lower than Anahata Chakra. Now you can hear, we say it in the text, but in this Upanishad you can see the reference that this, eight day, this Hrid Chakra has eight petals. Most of the lotuses in the yantras of India they have eight petals, which shows that this is in the human heart. So now he is describing something about Hrid Chakra, which is the place where is the soul. The place where you are as an individual and a soul. Your Atman goes to Sahasrara and there unites with Paramatman and it becomes one. So then you are located halfway between the earth and the heaven. And this is a statement which we see often in the yogic traditions. And this is illustrated no less than by Jesus himself, who is supposed to be the Son of God, an avatar, an incarnation of God, a totally perfect divine model. And this Jesus comes and shows you how to live like God would, like the perfect, archetypal, ultimate way. And Jesus most of the time stays and acts in Anahata. He preaches to people the way of the heart. We can even say that he stays and acts in Hrid, in Hridaya, as the place of the heart. Why is that? Because one cannot keep the peak experiences continuously. The Judeo-Christian tradition says there is nobody who can see God face to face and live. Like if you go too much in God, you go. And that's it. In the Hindu tradition, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa spent a lot of time in Samadhi and he says clearly there is a tradition in the world of yoga according to which if you spend more than 27 or 28 days non-stop, 24-7, in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, you leave the body. Like you stay too much in Sahasrara, you cannot come back. You are go- Not that it's a tragedy, because it isn't. But 
It's, that's the law of the universe. And that's why if you go, if you are in the lower chakras in the daily life, and then suddenly you make some yoga and rise your kundalini, and you go, woo, in Sahasrara, and you stay there one hour, two hours, whatever long your ecstasy will last, for the normal person who stays in this world, there will be a time when that is coming down. And when it's coming down, and you have been in Muladhara and in Sahasrara, where do you stay for the rest of the day? In between them, in the middle of them. It's like a seesaw. You find the midpoint. And the midpoint between Muladhara and Sahasrara is Anahata, or actually in this case, Hrid. You stay. That's why the heart chakra and Hrid, they have a privileged position because it's like the midpoint of your being. Some yogis even say that that's the wishful thinking and chakra-wise it is the midpoint of your being. But actually if you put a human being like this mechanically and you want to find its midpoint, the midpoint is not in Anahata. The midpoint is between Svadhisthana and Manipura where the Chinese say that there is the Dantian in what the yogis call Kanda. That's where the gravitational midpoint is. So the human beings go between Svadhisthana and Manipura. That's where almost everybody is. To be, to say that my midpoint is in Anahata, you have to be like Ramakrishna. You have to move, like you have to go much, much higher than the, you have to get out of your pelvis and out of your lower chakras and to live more in the higher chakras so that you move the balance. But for a person like Jesus, the midpoint is the heart. And that's why many, many spiritual teachings, they say when you don't do some Kundalini Yoga Mudra, you stay in Anahata. The midpoint of the mystical person is somewhere in Anahata. Which is a very important criterion. It doesn't apply for everybody, because for example, the midpoint in Zen meditation is often considered to be the Hara which is even lower than Manipura, exactly there. And then you consider, I go to Manipura, and the, my higher point is what? Ajna, or sometimes Sahasrara, or what? Why is Manipura then the midpoint? In India, being a country inclined to Bhakti Yoga, as well as in the Christian mysticism and others, the midpoint is desired to be Anahata, which is a little bit unrealistic. Anahata is like the kingdom of heaven. It's like the world to be. It's like the dream of Jesus that there will come a day when the lion will lie together with the lamb and there will be no more killing. The time or the planet of Anahata Chakra, of Ahimsa, of love, of kindliness, of compassion, of all the good things. Therefore, it's a bit utopian. It's a bit idealistic. And that's why people who live in Anahata, they are a little bit too high. Like normal people consider them saints. Normal people consider them like, whoa, you know, this person is slightly utopian and unrealistic. Walks 10 centimeters above the ground and think we should all love each other. But hey, you look around and that's not what's happening, right? So it's, you, it, there is something very idealistic about this. And he says, residing henceforth, like after he has gone to Sahasrara and discovered Paramahamsa, he changes register and he says, residing henceforth in the lotus of the heart, 
like once you've done this trip, your midpoint has become the heart. He finds there eight incitations corresponding to the eight petals. He says it's a lotus with eight petals, which is not anahata, therefore it's hrid. And he even gives the qualities of those. In other yogic texts, these are given even more precisely than this. Here they are given metaphorically. And because this is an advanced teaching which connects with the typologies of the Enneagram and with other practices that concern Hrid Chakra, which are quite secret in yoga, I'm not going to use the satsang which is made for the world at large to start describing now all the details of the Hrid Chakra because uh, it's not appropriate to go as deep as that in one of the forms of knowledge of yoga which is kept quite secret. Like this thing which you hear now here is a knowledge which you won't find except in two, three traditional texts of yoga and those are quite discreetly present in yoga and that's why you are going to see that this is already opening your eyes and giving you some knowledge. So he sends corresponding to the eight petals. Now there is a thing, these eight petals are archetypal in India and because they are eight, they are like the eight directions of the space. Like on a table you can put what the sailors call the rows of the winds. North, south, east, west and northeast, northwest, southeast, southwest. The eight directions, this symbol is also kept by the Sufis. The Sufis have an eight-pointed star which is a symbol of their devotional practice which goes to Hrid Chakra and it, which is about the soul again. So, and, and therefore when he describes them he uses metaphoric and geometrical description, which is very powerful. He says, the oriental petal inclined to pious actions. What's the oriental petal? If this would be a rose of the winds, any one of you would be able to tell me what's the oriental petal. It's the east. It's this one. The one which is like at three o'clock on a clock dial. That's the oriental petal. The petal of the east, as it is. So he basically says, in Hrid Chakra, the thing which goes east, which on, if you imagine the Hrid Chakra here, it would be this petal. So he says the petal which basically goes towards the left side of the body at three o'clock position. The oriental petal inclined to pious actions. Like when you have this petal activated, the human being is tempted to do things which are pious like go to a temple, to a church, every time you see a temple, give a salutation or make the sign of the cross or prostrate or do something. That's the person who is inclined to pious actions. In yoga we say that if you are a very pious person, you probably have this spoke of Hrid Chakra activated. It's as simple as that. And you are going to think that it's all honey and milk, but it is not. Because the human soul is a strange mixture of light and darkness. And other petals are not as nice as this. He then says the petal of Agni. And then here it starts being mysterious. I will not start explaining much more, but Agni in the Indian mythology is the god of fire. So she means the petal which corresponds to the fire. In India, the fire is located always analogously in the tantric tradition to the south because the sun is to the south, and the more you go south, the hotter it becomes. So the fire is bigger, and the people have darker skin, therefore more pitta, as you go to the south. 
So the petal of Agni means the one which goes down. This is the petal of Agni. No? So he talks about them and he doesn't put them in the order. But I'm not going to start clarifying for each and every one of it. Because it means I should spend the time here giving teachings about Hrit Chakra. And those teachings are somewhere in the Agama lore. They are not meant for tonight. The petal of Agni to drowsiness and laziness. Like there are people who constantly are a bit drowsy and lazy. When they do meditation, they tend to fall asleep and to doze and stuff. That is the petal of Agni. It's Hrid going to Manipura. It's the petal, the nadi, the channel that goes from Hrid down towards Manipura. The one of Yama, the petal of Yama, he means, which again, it's one of the traditional eight directions, to act with cruelty. To act with cruelty. Human beings can be cruel. The human soul is 50-50. The human soul is the battleground of light and darkness. The petal of Niriti, this is one of the goddesses, it's the consort of Narayana. The petal of Niriti, which is a form of Dumavati, for those of you who know the cosmic powers. So the petal of Niriti, it means dissolution, the one that annihilates, inciting to do evil. To the goddess Varuni, another of the petal, Varuni, Varuna is the water goddess, resides the thirst for pleasures. That's the one which goes up, for example, just to give you the north petal. And to Vayavi, Vayavi is the consort of Vayu, of the consort of the wind god in the Veda, the wish to travel, like to be nomadic, to always be on the move. The petal of Soma, inclining towards sensuality. And the one of Ishana, to seek material goods. So, there are many things in the human soul, according to this. These eight tendencies, plus the middle of this Hrit Chakra, they are described in the Sufi tradition as the famous Enneagram, that there are nine characteristics of the human being. This is very advanced teaching. If we, when we make the correspondence between these things, for you to understand. It's not appropriate for a satsang, where some of you are coming after no yoga or after very, very little yoga. This doesn't intend to be that teaching. But it's very interesting that here he says you, after going to samadhi, you become the archetypal human soul residing in the area of the heart, in hridaya, in hrid, and you have the eight characteristics of the soul, And as you can see, the soul is sometimes light and sometimes dark. And of course, now you are purified and you are an agent of the light. But still, the human soul, you see it, you understand it. In the middle of the lotus resides the feeling that follows from society being satiated, like being full of food after you ate. And it's a feeling of also being here, now present, calm, a calmness. The, st- the stamens, that's a part of a flower. It considers this like a lotus flower. And it says in the middle, like in the bija, you have like the presence. And you are going to know immediately that that refers to physical presence, jagrat, wakefulness. 
the stamens, the stamens of a flower, for those of you who know what the stamens mean in a flower, just around the middle of the flower, represents the state of wakefulness. The pericarp, the state of svapna, which means the second state of consciousness, the state of sleep with dreams, light sleep. And the androecium, the more external part, like this is a, these are all botanical names, believe me. I had to look in the Webster to find them exactly what the translation was because even I didn't know what they were called in English. So they are the center, the stamens, the pericarp, the androecium, which represents the deep sleep without dreams. That's the external part before the petals, just the circle before the petals. It's about the fourth state, which is called Turia. The swan attains it, the swan attains it, which means your spirit attains it, when it leaves the lotus, like it's on the end of it. And then it goes even beyond this fourth, when Nada, which, run, which ran in the whole body from Muladhara to Brahmarandra, this was the exercise which you did from Muladhara to Brahmarandra, like the sound of a pure crystal is extinguished. Now he goes further. He combines Kundalini with Nada, with the sound of a pure crystal. What a beautiful analogy for people who do Laya Yoga and who like auditory practices in yoga, that the Nada is compared with the sound of a pure crystal. It's a vibration of Kundalini that you are humming with energy. And this humming is like a pure crystal. It's ping. It's a very pure, delicate sound. And when this is extinguished, like it calms down. So when this hum from Kundalini goes, then one is running to the Nada, and this Nada can lead you even before the fourth state. I'm going to come back to those in a second. It has been said of this Nada that it is Brahman, the Supreme Spirit. So basically here, he describes rising of Kundalini and Parama Atman, Paramahamsa, he describes residing in the lotus of the heart and he even gives the petals of the lotus of the heart according to their directions and basically and tells what you acquire from it. And then he says that in this lotus of the heart, in the middle, you have wakefulness and then you have sleep with dreams and then you have sleep without dreams and then you have the fourth state, which means when you fall asleep, it's like imagine that something in your Hrid Chakra it blooms, like it goes like. Many of the exercises, especially in Tibetan yoga, for acquiring conscious sleep, lucid dreaming, or the illusory body, the dream body, as they call it, the body of light, they rely exactly on this, that at some point or another of the exercise, you focus not on Ajna Chakra, not on Sahasrara, but you focus in the heart. Something happens here. When I discovered this, when I heard about this many, many years ago, I even tried. When I was lying down in bed, I was doing like Shavasana, and I was concentrating not on Ajna and Sahasrara, but I was concentrating to feel like an expansion here. That something goes from the center, further out, further out, all the way out. That is falling asleep. <laughs> and ever since I did this practice... I acquired a very interesting awareness because the first times when I did it, I realized that every time when I was falling asleep, there was like a fire coming in my body and I actually felt even very f 
physically hot, until today I cannot fall asleep in a room which is too hot. It's impossible for me because it's like I already catch fire when I fall asleep because that's an astral projection. And the energy is going into the fire body, <coughs> into the third body which corresponds to Manipura Chakra and is therefore the more fiery body, the astral body. And in terms of chakras, this is happening very much in Hrit Chakra, which is a good information for those of you who wish to practice Nidra Yoga, an, an additional guidance for you. And here in Nidra Yoga is you feel like there is a sun, there is like a fire, and it opens and opens and opens and becomes more subtle as you are going into states of deeper sleep. And that's why he speaks about the spokes of it, and he then passes directly to the falling asleep. And then he says the fourth state is attained when it leaves the lotus, like when it goes outside here. That's when it leaves the lotus, like it goes, it's in the center, out, more out, all the way out. And then it says it leaves the fourth when, this, when it attains, when the energy, when this awareness leaves the lotus. And then it goes even beyond of this fourth, which is very revolutionary in yoga, because it basically tells you, it tells us, that there does exist a fourth state of consciousness. And a fifth one, beyond the fourth which is, in classical yoga, the fourth is the last. And it it's called Turiya, which means fourth in Sanskrit. And it corresponds to the void, Shunyata, from Buddhism. And it corresponds to the Nirvikalpa Samadhi from the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. But many texts of yoga, including this Upanishadic text, gently, they tell us there is a fifth. There is one, in Kashmiri Shaivism and other traditions of India, they call it Turiyatita, beyond the Turiya. Beyond the fourth, which would mean the fifth. It doesn't get a number, but there is a text with a state of consciousness which is called beyond void, beyond Turiya. And that state of consciousness is alluded here, and this author, he knows about it, which is very seldom, very rare in yoga. And he says it goes even beyond of this fourth, when Nada, which is here equated with Kundalini, because he says this Nada, which is a sound, which ran in the whole body from Muladhara to Brahmarandra, so it's Nada Kundalini, it's Kundalini as, zzz, as sound, as mantra, like the sound of a pure crystal, is extinguished. So it's like, zzz. and then when it is extinguished, it's beyond the fourth, which is Turiyatita. It has been said of this Nada that it is Brahman, the Supreme Spirit. Actually, nada, yes, but when nada is extinguished, you go beyond nada and you go beyond the fourth. So he turns back when he says this to the fourth. And he says it has been said that this nada, which is like Kundalini rising from Muladhara to Brahmarandra, that it is Brahman or the Supreme Spirit. Kashmiri Shaivis clearly places nada here at the level of, Brahman, of, of Brahmarandra. And then when you go higher in the energy, the next level is called Nadanta, which means end of Nada, that it's beyond Nada, that here even Nada ends. So going beyond this level is like going to the fifth state of consciousness, and that is what is alluded to here. We will I am in the strophe in the cluster number eight, where he describes that now this Hrit Chakra is related with the 
Jagrat, Svapna, Sushupti, Turiya, the four states of consciousness, and even with Turiyatita, but that's beyond the body, that's beyond the Brahmarandra. And he makes a beautiful comparison which shows what a, what a complex yogi this was, that he writes and then he says, um, this is related with Nada, which runs from the whole body, so it's Kundalini, and which sounds like a pure crystal, and when this Nada is silent, is extinguished, he says. And it has been said of this Nada, up to here, that it is Brahman, the Supreme Spirit. It's a beautiful, beautiful, very complex reading, lots of correlations, lots of interconnectedness in between the things which have been said. And then he continues by talking about, suddenly, because he reached in Nada, in the sound, and now he wants to talk about the sound, and because he wants to... No, it's Hamsa Upanishad. He wants to talk about this connection between Hamsa as a pure spirit from Vedanta, Atman, Kundalini Yoga, moving to Brahmarandra, things happening in Hrid Chakra and all that thing. And now he wants to turn back to the Hamsa thing, the teaching. And he says about the mantra of the swan. So, this is a very paradoxical thing, because the mantra is the swan. Because in Sanskrit, the mantra is Hamsa. And Hamsa, Hamsa means also a swan. So, it's the mantra of the mantra. It's the Hamsa of the Hamsa. It's the mantra Hamsa. It's a double entendre. So, he says about this mantra, which is Hamsa, and which we teach openly, because in the Upanishads is so famous. He says, the Rishi is the swan itself. In India, they, when they talk about mantras, the correct mantra shastra is that every mantra has a Rishi, a meter, and a bija, and the shakti, and other things. But the, first, the main three things are the Rishi, the meter, and the bija. The Rishi means, who is the Rishi? Rishis are sages of antiquity, ancient sages, the founders of the Vedic and Vedantic tradition. And there are some, the seven rishis and a few others. And these rishis are the ones who revealed many, 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 many things at the beginning of Hinduism. In immemorial times, this is beyond history. We don't know when exactly. Before the times of Rama and Ramayana, the rishis were there. So the rishis are ancient and uh, some of the rishis are very well known, like Kapila and others. There are Agastya and there are a few very well-known rishis, and usually the mantras are said, the rishi of the mantra is this, which means who revealed it. Because the mantras are not coming from Tom, Dick and Harry. They come from the rishis, you know. These are revelations which come from very authentic, powerful masters. Not if you have a mantra which comes from Tom, Dick and Harry, you can scratch your head and say, what if it's not right? You have the right to do that, you know. So it's like, what's the rishi of the mantra? And here he says the rishi is the swan itself. The swan is Atman. And he says the rishi of this mantra is Atman itself. 
Like nobody revealed this mantra, everybody got it the same. It runs through the Upanishads and it's everywhere in the Indian culture. Like Aum, Aum, Hamsa, these are mantras which seem to come directly from God because everybody got them right the same way. And that's why he says the Rishi of the mantra Hamsa is the Swan itself, it's the Atman itself. This is revealed by the Supreme Self from within. That you are breathing hamsa, hamsa, hamsa. The meter is octosyllabic, which is completely not relevant for those of you who don't study advanced Sanskrit. It is relevant when the mantras are long, but the mantra hamsa is two syllables, so it's really, really short. So when you have om burbuvas vahat atsavitur varenyam bargode vasyadimai and so on, you find out that the Gayatri mantra has a meter. And that meter, if you'd follow it correctly, it makes that it can be chanted only in certain ways. Of course, the hippies today are chanting Gayatri in 25,000 different times because it fits with some fancy melodies. But the fact that you can split the mantra between Dimahi, Diyoyo, Naha, Prachodayate... This is not permitted in Sanskrit. The, it has to be, you have to, there is a certain verse. Exactly like you say, ta-da-da-da-da-da-da. Ta-da-da-da-da-da-da. No, you have to split it after ta-da-da. Not after, like you have to split it in certain ways according to the meter of the mantra. This is called euphonics. And it's very rarely that some people study this. Only advanced Sanskritological studies study euphonics. And they tell you this, that you can analyze a mantra according to its meter and all that. In the case of the Hamsa mantra, it's of no relevance because the Hamsa mantra has two syllables and that's all there is to it. So, of course, you can mention the meter, but that's more a scholarly thing. It has no other relevance. The target, like where does this mantra go? What's the target? Like the target of the Kali mantra is Kali herself. If you repeat the Kali Mantra, you unite with Kali. What's the target of the Hamsa Mantra? The target of the Mantra is the Supreme Swan, Parama Hamsa, which means Paramatman, which means the Supreme Self of the Universe, which means God. So Hamsa is defined in the Hamsa Upanishad as a mantra that leads to God. That's why it is perfectly legitimate that, for example, in the Kriya Yoga of Patanjali, they do meditation with Hamsa, Hamsa, Hamsa. As we advise auditory people to do it in Agama with the Prana Uchara. This mantra Hamsa is very old, very famous, very acknowledged, very recognized in yoga. And it doesn't come from epigones in the 19th or 20th century. This is coming from far, far down the history of yoga. And it is said here, the target of the swan mantra, of the Hamsa mantra, is the supreme swan itself, which means the Hamsa of the universe, the Maha Hamsa, the Parama Hamsa, Paramatman, or God. The Bija is secret. We are being told that there exists a Bija mantra, as we use in the cases of Agama Yoga. The Bija is not given. It is reserved to secret teachings. It exists, but it is a bija which is not given. The shakti 
is this one itself, the Shakti. Like by what power does the mantra Hamsa work? By the power of this one itself, like this one is the breath, is Hamsa, is the original prana. So the Shakti of this mantra is the spirit itself. The spirit produces, is endowed with this mantra. That's why the mantra Hamsa is the mantra of the Jivatman, is the mantra of the spirit itself, is the mantra which corresponds to Hrit Chakra and all that. And the steel point, the steel point, like in an arrow, the arrow has a point, the steel point of the arrow, the tip is to think, I am he. So not only that you say Hamsa, 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 but you give a meaning to this Hamsa, Hamsa, by saying, I am Brahman, I am he, I am that, I am God. Depending how you formulate it, again, in Sanskrit is Aham, Saha, I am that, or I am he. This was the verse number 10, which says about the mantra of the swan. And it shows you how special this mantra Hamsa is. It's a very, very exceptional mantra. And I'm going to perhaps stop here because I'm somewhere at the middle of this text, which is 21 verses. And I have done 10 of them. I see it's 10.30 and I don't want to keep you much later than this. Then he will keep talking in the next satsang. I will continue with the Hamsa Upanishad telling to you about this mantra and its uses. You have some of its uses. For example, if you took in Agama the Kriya Yoga initiation, which we give in the metaphysical workshop. Soon it's coming and you can get that initiation as well. Or... Even more important, in my opinion, here in Agama, that's why we don't include it in the course, even more important, what we include in the course is for the very beginning, the Prana Uchara, where you learn to use this Hamsa in association with the chakras and with the tantric technology, according to very, very advanced tantric technology, like in the uh, Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. So in this way, Hamsa Upanishad deepens for you, or has deepened until now, Several topics, rising of Kundalini through the chakras, Kundalini being compared with Nada, and we're going to get there, that's a combination with Laya Yoga, with hearing this whistling sounds, internal sounds for meditation. So it went there and comparing it with a pure crystal sound and all that. And extolling the, the virtues of the mantra Hamsa, like where it comes from, and revealing things about the fact that the person who resides between heaven, uh, between heaven and earth resides in Hrid Chakra, which is the location of the human soul, which is light and shadow, made with eight petals. And in that twilight zone, in that middle zone, there is also the access through the heart chakra. You can go out in Nidra Yoga, in sleep with dreams, sleep without dreams, Turiya and even beyond Turiya, which is beyond Brahmarandra. And that's a weird combination, we'll explore it more. And it described for you this Hamsa mantra in its origins. 
Now the verse number 11 will start by saying this mantra has to be repeated 21,600 times per day, which is actually, uh, as I'm going to reveal, I'm going to comment this next week, this is a very twisted statement, because actually this mantra is called in India Ajapa Mantra, so you don't repeat it, it goes by itself, because you breathe anyway. Even when you forget, you breathe, and therefore you are doing hamsa, hamsa, by just breathing. And you breathe 15 times per minute. Because everybody takes approximately 4 minutes, four seconds to inhale and exhale. So it's 15 times per minute. Which means in 60 minutes, it's happening 900 times. And if you multiply that with 24, you're going to get to 21,600. So basically you are repeating it. This mantra has to be repeated in the meaning that you have to stay with it. But you don't have to do anything because it is repeated anyway because you are breathing. So it's a very particular way. It's basically corresponding to what the Christian mystics use, the prayer of the heart, that you can pray non-stop. And you have a mala, you have one of these malas and you use them all the time. That you can pray, 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 even while you eat and even while you speak and even while you sleep. You just keep on going and you repeat a prayer. And this is the spontaneous prayer, hamsa, hamsa which is the spirit given to me by God, which is the life given to me by God, which is the fact that I am breathing. Breathe, you are alive. Like in Anapana, I breathe and therefore this is consciousness. So it's, it's a sort of attempt of telling you, this mantra should become like your permanent consciousness. Paul, the apostle of Christ, writes in a letter and therefore we are surrounded by evil, this and that, and therefore he says you should pray ceaselessly, so that you... And actually when you read it in a letter, from a man written to a group of Christians, from an apostle, uh, when you say you should pray ceaselessly, it means like every day. But the great saints of Christianity have said there is a double entendre. If you read it like a layman, praying ceaselessly, it means pray all day, pray all the time. But if you take it as a mystic, pray ceaselessly means pray 24-7. So pray ceaselessly means learn to have a prayer or something which goes 24-7. In Hesychast Christianity, that is the prayer of the heart. That you repeat one of the formulas, they are more advanced and more simple formulas, and you repeat it even when you dream, even in your sleep, you find yourself repeating the prayer of the heart to Jesus. In this Upanishad, basically it goes there and it says that could be very well one of these permanent prayers. Your spinning wheel inside your head can be hamsa, 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 hamsa. Because you are breathing anyway. Even when you dream, you still breathe. And therefore the prayer of the breath continues non-stop. And the breath is I am He. And the breath is the life, the Shakti in your being. And it's the consciousness and all that. We'll continue with this, therefore, on the syllable, on the shloka or strophe number 11, where he describes further practices. As time has shown, this uh, Upanishad is too loaded with meanings and too full of teachings to be analyzed in one go. So next time, part two, and I'll see how long time it takes. With this, we have finished for tonight. Thank you for joining the satsang.